So here's some exciting news. Our podcast, Creating Our Own Lives, Cool for Short, has just launched its second great season on humor as a tool for survival. On Being's Lily Percy is speaking with 15 different voices on the surprising ways humor shapes us and brings meaning to our lives. Insights from writers, comedians, political and financial reporters, a sex educator, and a rabbi, starring voices like Margaret Cho, Hari Kondabolu, Terry McMillan, Sam Sanders, and Lindy West. Find Cool on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite shows. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. The greatest mysteries are the simplest ones. Those are the ones that we confront every day. I had a conversation once with a, a priest. I was traveling and went to confession in this very remote place, and suddenly he said, well, we don't know what God is, do we? <laughs> you know, what it says is we, every time we try to identify God, we are sure to identify what he is certainly, what she is certainly not. And the genius of God to dwell where we would least likely look within the depths of our own being, our own shallowness, our own darkness, our own humanity. Martin Sheen has appeared in over 100 films, including Apocalypse Now. He's best known on television as President Bartlett in seven seasons of The West Wing. But he has another, lesser-known life as an activist. He's been arrested over 60 times in vigils and protests about race, war, and nuclear weapons. He's driven by a deep and joyful faith, which has been at the center of his identity since he had a crisis and reawakening at the height of his fame in midlife. And my 2015 conversation with Martin Sheen is full of wisdom and delight. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Martin Sheen was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, to an Irish mother and a Spanish father. His mother died when he was 11, and his father raised him and nine siblings on his own. I'd love, before we start, for you to say your legal name, the name you were born with. I want to hear you oh, say yes, it. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, me llamo Ramon Esteves, a.k.a. Martin Sheen. Okay. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so one thing that's interesting to me is, it seems to me that Especially when you were playing President Bartlett on The West Wing, you know, journalists have written a lot across the years about your progressive politics. And Catholics here and there have paid attention to your to your religious foundations, which in fact underpin your progressive politics. Mm-hmm. I experience you to be a very integrated person, have an integrated experience and conscience. And so, you know, I feel like there are these two people who the public knows. There's Martin Sheen and Ramon Estevez. And I want to talk to both of you, or all of you, as, as it were. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I feel right. like that's who you live as, but I'm not, well, I don't feel like this person gets drawn out all the time. So here we are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all okay, three of good us. deal. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I do feel sometimes I, I live in a split personality, hmm. you know. Well, okay, um, we'll see what we can, we'll unite that. Yeah. Um, so there's this question I, I always ask when I start an interview, and I'm interested to know how you would start to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. How would you describe that now? Well, it was the uh, foundation, really, of the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I was raised in a, a large, very poor uh, family of immigrants. So I was the first generation uh, Spanish-Irish yeah. uh, and so, you know, that really set the focus for my, the rest of my life. And we had a phrase when I was young in our community that one serves oneself best by serving others first. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stood me uh, in pretty good stead the rest of my life because it it was always a question of community. Where if you were doing well, and I mean well by you were living an honest life, you were a part of a community. And when you were not, 
uh, you had drifted from that community. So I, I drifted kind of in and out, you know. But as a boy, uh, the staples of my life were my family, my church, and school. And they were all integrated. They, you, you couldn't right, separate right. one from the other. My teachers were as much my family as my uh, blood relatives. Hmm. You know, when I look at the trajectory of your life and you know the story of your, de- the, I'd say the development of your social and your spiritual conscience across adulthood, it's very much a kind of classic story of, you know, there was hardship, but how hardship often leads to what are gifts and it, that it's it's not so much what you're given, but how you take it in and work with it. You've said yeah. somewhere that caddying was where your social conscience began to be formed. Can you say some more about that? <laughs> Very and I clear. guess that was a job you had to take because you all had to work to keep the family going. Yeah, we going. did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, uh, I started caddying. Uh, I hate to admit this because I'm going to reveal my age, but I started caddying in 1949 at a private uh, country club. And, uh, it, yeah, th- those were very formative years. I spent my whole boyhood, but at least every summer, early spring to late fall, at the golf course caddying, you know, for a lot of very overprivileged people, right. <laughs> mostly right. the men. But I'm very grateful to them because, in large measure, they taught me what not to be. And um, it, it just became a matter of course, you know, that they, you were a servant, and they rarely saw you, saw you as a person, you know, and mm. so they would uh, tell stories in front of you and, and um, talk about each other, They, you know, and you were kind of a, a fly uh, on the tree on the golf course as it were, or a bumblebee. Wow. But you, you got a sense of these people, in few exceptions, but most of them were overprivileged and unaware, you know, and so they were not our inspiration, you know. Right, right. And then it's so interesting to me that, you know, you say you had a movie habit early on, and the expectation in your life is that you would do some kind of manual labor, but you couldn't do that because you had had this forceps injury at birth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I wonder if that movie career would even have been a path you'd walked into. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I I hadn't thought of it that way because I I never really had a uh, consciousness about what... I wanted to do, and yet I knew, and I think all children know at a very, very young age something about themselves, deeply personal, that Mm. it's almost impossible to communicate uh, with any understanding to anyone else. But I I had this as well, and and I started going to movies, I guess I was around five or six, and gradually it dawned on me that I was like one of those people I was looking at on the screen. And, and it was a revelation, and it was a great uh, sense of peace overcame me as a child because I, I knew that it was possible that I could do that. It, it, mm. In fact, it was more than I, that I could do that. It was that I was that already. I, mm. I, I just actor. sort of embraced it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew it. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, that's what I, oh, fine, I was worried about this uh, this business deep inside of me that I could not communicate. Oh, that's what it is. Fine. All right. Well, and I just sort of waited until I was, uh, <laughs> um, you know, old enough to pursue it. Mm. And I did, you know. And then I think you, like a lot of people, you weren't, you became less religious or less overtly religious as you as you left home and ventured out in your career. Yeah. Is that right? I mean, it just yeah, very much stopped so, being, yeah. I mean, this is what your passion was and... I, yeah, it was interesting sure, yeah. to me that you discovered the Catholic worker in New York, but a sense it was yeah. not so much as a devout Catholic as, a, as but as no. a starving actor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I was I was working um, at the American Express Company as a stock boy down on Lower Broadway <laughs> in Manhattan, and I got fired just a few weeks before Christmas, huh. and then. Uh, a week or so later, I got hired uh, at the Living Theater by uh, Julian Beck and Judith Molina, who were mm-hmm. two of my first uh, teachers, really. Um, they were extremely involved in social justice work and in oh. um, political uh, radicalism. You know, they were the first band the bombers and women strike for peace and 
Um, gosh, they were just a great source of inspiration to me. And I started at the theater uh, as a curtain puller and a general understudy, uh, uh, and they didn't have a lot of money. In fact, I was paid $5 a week. This was in 1959. Which, which, but I was worth every penny. Yeah. <laughs> and at any rate, they said, look, we know you can't live on this, but we have a friend who has a soup kitchen nearby. and. Uh, you go down there, and, uh, and you don't have to pay anything, and, and you just wait online, and uh, they'll feed you uh, five nights a week. And it was the Catholic worker. And was and that I friend began, of theirs, uh, Dorothy Day, or was it someone else who— uh, Yes, the friend was Dorothy Day. She had done uh, uh, some prison time with uh, Judith Molina. They were oh, very right. close friends. In fact, each one of them wrote about the other uh, mm-hmm. in their autobiographies. Uh, they did 30 days together for protesting— wow. uh, Nuclearism. And, uh, yeah, that was the national religion at the time. Oh, so interesting. But, uh, yeah, and so uh, I started going there. And for months uh, and months I went there. I had no idea. I could have met Dorothy Day, but I couldn't tell you because I wasn't there for any other reason but to satisfy my (laughs) hunger. (laughs) Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Martin Sheen. His breakthrough role came in Terrence Malick's Badlands. Then, while filming his starring role in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now in the Philippines in 1977, he experienced a health breakdown and an existential crisis. This continued as he traveled to India to work on the film Gandhi. It's interesting to me how you're film projects and your acting projects, they also, I don't know if it's that they converge with where you are personally, or maybe it's this thing of not choosing your life, but living it. It seems like where, what, you know, you, you yeah, are working right. with whatever your ex- life experience is. And for you, that life experience included these, these film projects and these dramatic roles, which took you kind of out yeah. of yourself or to a larger yeah, place. Yeah. I've often said that if I knew Going in, what awaited me on the apocalypse, I would have passed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but since I went through that experience, I wouldn't change it for the world because it brought me to myself in ways that maybe nothing else could have at the time. I survived a physical illness, but I, I didn't know if I could have survived a spiritual crisis. Mm-hmm. And that made it real clear how much was at stake. So, yeah, between Apocalypse and Gandhi, there were about four years, and they were years of reflection and alcohol abuse and insecurity and anger and resentment and um, a near breakup with my family. But I was searching for that elusive thing that all of us search for most of the time we're not even conscious of it but we're we're searching for ourselves in an authentic way we want to recognize the person we see in the mirror yeah. and embrace that person with all the brokenness and and lackluster all the things that only we are aware of in the depths of our being and that's what i was offered an opportunity to deal with when i finally arrived in India in 1981 to do this part in uh, Gandhi. I was only there about five or six weeks, and mm-hmm. my son Emilio uh, accompanied me. And that was the turning point, because I saw a poverty very up close and personal that I could not have imagined, and it, it really went to the center of my being and took me out of myself. Right. And, and that's what changed my life. Right. Yeah. So there had been that inward journey and that inward reckoning. And then yeah. this also took you back out again. And those things came together, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I came home from India really shaken. And I remember bringing some books on Indian philosophy and Hinduism and nonviolence and all of the the energy that was mine to absorb during that period. Yeah. And as soon as I got home, I had to go straight away to Paris. Uh, And while I was in Paris, 
during that very, very sensitive period, I ran into an old and very dear friend who became my mentor, really, and that was Terrence Malick, mm-hmm. who was living in Paris, very kind of underground. Um, he was on the same kind of journey, I guess, I was. But he saw in me this struggle, and he, I guess for lack of a better term, became for me a spiritual advisor. And he, but, he, he um, gave you the Brothers Karamazov? Was yes, he would that? give me material along the way. He said, well, Martin, I think you're ready for this. And he'd give me material. We'd talk about that. <laughs> and then he'd give me another book. And the final step, I guess, in my journey was the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. And that did it. I, you know, I, it, it got me in ways that uh, I could not have imagined. I, I stayed up nights. I, it took me a, a week to read it. It was over a thousand pages. So yeah. Was, <laughs> but, and then I finished it on, um, I mean, I remember very specifically um, May Day in Europe is a big celebration. Yeah. It's like our Labor Day. Yeah. And I had off from work that day. I'd finished it the night before, and I knew that I had to respond to this need within me that was now at a very critical crossroads. And that is, all right, where do you go from here? And I walked, uh, I was living in the left bank at that time, and I walked over to uh, this little Catholic church. It's the only English-speaking church in all of France, I discovered later. And it was the church where uh, Oscar Wilde converted. And uh, I learned that later. I said, well, I think I came to the right place. Yeah, and I came came back to Catholicism, and it was the, the single most joyful moment of my life because mm-hmm. I knew that I had come home to myself in deeply personal ways. This satisfaction has lasted all these years. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm still on the honeymoon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go figure. Uh, well, I, well, it's beautiful. I wonder... But see, I didn't come back. I, I was afraid to come back to the piety of my youth, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted the sacraments. I wanted the community. But I didn't want to feel like I was under a microscope and that God was watching me and looking for me to make a mistake, and now I got you, you know. It had to be an active spirituality. So I want to I want to I want to keep going on that. I just want to ask you a couple questions before we do that. One is I just so just imagine people who are listening to this may not have ever read the Brothers Karamazov or may have read it 20 or 30 years ago in college. I mean, it was, it's a great well, novel. I wouldn't recommend it unless you want your life changed. <laughs> <laughs> Say a little. I mean, it's a, it's a great novel that weaves into the great debates yeah. of his age about God and free will yeah. and morality. But could you just yeah. say a little bit about what was it in that book that galvanized you? It's about the reality of commitment. It's about knowing that you're living an honest life hmm. and knowing when you're not. Basically, okay. and it's about family. It's done within family and community, hmm. and it's not something that you can easily shake. It's not a work that you can put down and pick up something else and not reflect. You'll find yourself going back to it again and again and again. It was Dorothy Day's uh, favorite book as well, I and didn't she know that. read it. Uh, she would reread it and talk about it and write about it. Yeah, Dostoevsky had a a grip on the reality of life as it is. And, you know, he was a habitual gambler. He was not a celebrated man in in many respects, but he longed to live an honest and free life because that's really where we find the presence of God or the one, the other, whatever we express as a higher power, Hmm. that we are part of a community. And that work, Dostoevsky's work, specifically in that book, is about being a part of a community and not being able to let it go without a severe penalty. Hmm. And I think that points at something, a dynamic that I sense, which is, you know, on the one hand, you're talking about this call to activism, which you followed after that. But also there's the inner, the inner work, and those two things go together. And love mm-hmm. is a word you use when you talk about, you know, that conversion, that experience you had. Yeah, the yeah. love that I long for, and I think all of us really long for, mm-hmm. is knowing that we are loved. 
Mm. A knowingness about our being that unites us to all of humanity, to all of the universe, that despite ourselves, we are loved. And when you realize that and you embrace that, you begin to look at everyone else and you can see very clearly who in your vision knows they're loved and who does not. Mm. Mm. And that makes all the difference. And I began to give thanks and praise for that love. You know how so often people say they they go on this journey, and I, I said it too, that I'm looking for God. I'm looking, but God has already found us, really. We have to look in the spot where we're least likely to look, and that is within ourselves. And when we find that love, that presence, deep within our own personal being. And it's not something that you can earn or something that you can work towards. It's just a realization of being human, of being alive, mm. of being conscious. And that love is overwhelming. And that is the basic foundation of joy. And we become enviable, joyful. Mm. And then we see it in others and we seek to ignite that love in others. You can't do it, or you can't force someone to realize they're loved, but you can show them. And, <laughs> right. and most of the effort we make is just by living our lives, by being compassionate and loving and respectful and being a vassal of service for others. That's what feeds that love. Right. Right. It's like giving back. But just that embrace, I, I sometimes, you know, I, it is so overwhelming at times, this reality of loving because one is loved, that it just, it brings you up short. You just sit and stare sometimes into a vacuum and say, where did this come from? And why is it so clear? And why is it so simple and so powerful? And... One of the great mysteries uh, that I experience at Mass is the reception at communion, you know. How, yeah. how do we embrace that? How can we possibly consciously understand what that is? And I don't have a clue. I just stand online and say, I'm Ramon, called Martin, your friend. You're welcome here. And I'm with them. <laughs> whoever the crowd is I'm getting online with, you just look at the people who are on that line, that, that community. That is the greatest and simplest uh, expression of uh, overtly trying to explain this mystery I'm talking about, because it is a mystery. Yeah. It is probably yeah. the most profound mystery in all of the universe, this love. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed just watching people online to embrace that sacrament. It is the most profound thing. I, I, I never, ever can get over it. It's just something you have to surrender to and just saying, yeah, I'm with them. That's the community of saints. And that's the basis of and the kind of that embeddedness in that sense of love and that sense of belonging, that sense of community is then the foundation from which you got very engaged in the world in a in a different way and also yeah. I'm so interested it's, in it's experiencing true <laughs> mm-hmm. personal joy okay and yeah. we're and working on hard things right i mean also experiencing joy and 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 fighting against injustice of <laughs> absolutely yeah that's a, i couldn't do it uh, if I, I you know all the demonstrations i've ever been on have been uh, nurtured and inspired and performed in this arena of joy. And so when I would go to a demonstration, no matter what the issue or the cause, it would always be prayerful and joyful. I would never take it personal Mm -hmm. with the guards or the police or whoever I was being arrested by. Uh, In fact, I remember my first arrest with Dan Berrigan uh, in New York. uh, We were protesting uh, nuclearism. And he was a uh, Jesuit priest and very became well-known as a Vietnam War protester in particular. Yes, later, he went to prison. Yeah. He burned draft files at Catonsville, mm-hmm. Maryland, and went to federal prison with his brother Philip for several years for opposing the war in Vietnam. He was the greatest source of inspiration for me when I came back. 
he was underground after he was found guilty, and he stayed underground for months. And uh, every now and then he would surface to a peace group or a community. And uh, once he was asked by someone in in one of these groups, oh, yeah, Father Berrigan, it's all well and good for you to protest the war in Vietnam and to choose to go to prison. You don't have any children. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our children if we go to prison? And Daniel Berrigan responded, what's going to happen to them if you do not? That's the kind of uh, inspiration that yeah. I, I had to embrace. With uh, Yeah, Dan Berrigan changed my life. I've often said that Mother Teresa drove me back to Catholicism, but Daniel Berrigan keeps me there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen again and share this conversation with Martin Sheen through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the actor Martin Sheen. Born Ramon Estevez to Irish-Spanish immigrants, his deep Catholic spirituality and his social justice passion have been at the center of his life both on screen and off. While taking part in actions ranging from the farm worker movement of Cesar Chavez to protests against nuclear weapons and war, Martin Sheen has been arrested over 60 times. I did not know this about you until I kind of got into this preparation for this conversation. You got arrested a lot protesting the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua. I mean, at one point you said you got arrested every Wednesday morning. Yeah, we had the Wednesday morning coalition, yeah, at the federal building. We would meet at La Placita uh, every Wednesday morning with this coalition that included, uh, you know, priests and uh, rabbis and... uh, people from all over the community. It was uh, all these guys uh, led these things, and we would block the courthouse entrance uh, protesting the war in El Salvador, and we'd be arrested. And uh, and I had a, a, a backup. I had like 13 arrests at one time before I got a court date, and it's federal because it's a federal building, so you come before a federal uh, judge. And she said, uh, well, because I'm always arrested under my real name, Ramon. Right, right. I have no, I have no ideas, Martin. So she said, Ramon, it doesn't seem if, if I put you in jail, it isn't going to make any difference. You're going to continue. You're hell-bent on this protest, aren't you? I said, I'm afraid so, Your Honor. She said, well, will you do community service? I will, I said. And she sent me to the Bread and Roses uh, Homeless Cafe in Venice, and I was there for 10 years. <laughs> and that was Sister Rose Harrington, right? Sister Rose. And another one of your saint it. comrades. One of my, uh, God rest her, yet, yeah, another one of my heroes, yeah. Mm-hmm. She founded this unique uh, homeless kitchen where they served at tables with flowers, and you had to have a mm-hmm. reservation because that told us how many to expect, but it also was a great uh, source of dignity for our guests. She said, we call everyone Mr. and Miss or Mrs., and they are our guests, mm-hmm. and they're the only reason we're here, and we treat them with respect and dignity, and I did, and uh, yeah, it was the longest job I've ever had in my life, uh, yeah, 10 years. And <laughs> in fact, I only had to leave to go and do the—I uh, had to leave to go and do the West Wing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, no one with your kind of criminal record could ever have been elected president. Um, <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> But I did. I did love it that in those years. What did you say? Did you have like a business card? You you or you presented yourself sometimes. What it was the acting president of the West the, Wing. Uh, the acting president the of acting the United <laughs> States. Yes, yes. A friend of mine, Matt Clark, uh, came up with that, and I, I kind of I liked that a lot. Yeah. Know. So that was from 1999 to 2006, seven seasons. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was one of the best of times. Yeah. 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 Really was. Yeah. It was a great experience. Both. Uh, professionally and personally and spiritually. And I only asked two things of the production when I got the part. Yeah. 
And that is that, that could the president be Catholic and could he have a Notre Dame degree? Really? <laughs> and they gave me both. Yeah. I wanted him to be Catholic so that I could personally relate to every issue on, in, in a moral frame of reference. And I wanted Bartlett to do that, even with the death penalty and uh, with uh, issues of war and peace, all of it. I wanted him to be... Uh, known to be a practicing Catholic, and he dealt with things in a moral frame of reference. Uh, you know, I that's... was inspired by that uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, with Jimmy Carter. Oh, okay. And, yeah, that's, uh, in fact, that's he was one of the inspirations for the character of Bart. There was Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and John Kennedy. Uh, okay. Not bad. Not bad uh, source of inspiration. Yeah, and that you that you insist on being Catholic—that's interesting. I mean, I went back and watched the pilot, and you know, I think it's 18 minutes in. The White House chief of staff—you have not appeared yet, but the White no, House chief I don't of staff. No, the last he, scene. <laughs> he says, "This president is a deeply religious man." Oh, I don't remember that yeah. line, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, there it was. Um, your 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 wish was represented from that very beginning, but a deeply religious, deeply Catholic, and also deeply politically progressive man, which it's certainly a huge tradition and lineage in Catholicism, right? As we've been discussing, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily the kind of Catholic that's made the news in politics in the last couple mm-hmm. of decades, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, true. I would say I was less religious and more, at least in, in a personal effort of towards spirituality. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard to be defined by a religion and, and to shake that kind of mantle, you know, whatever the religion is. Mm-hmm. I think that what is more unifying, because unfortunately religions so divide us these days yeah. more and more, but spirituality unites us because it's about our humanity, and and that's where I think we really have to come together. You know, we're in Advent now, and uh, one of my favorite Advent quotes is from Thomas Merton. I have it pinned up on my wall at home. Mm. It was a Christmas card from Daniel Berrigan, and it had this (laughs) quote. May I I give it to you? Yes, please. This is Advent. Here's what we're dealing with. This is Thomas Merton on a Christmas card. Into this world... This demented inn, where there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. Yeah. <laughs> That's Christmas. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, when you talk about uh, religion or spirituality or, you know, uh, keeping Christ in Christmas, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who well, wants to deal with that? You know, I love that phrase. That, that quote is my favorite Merton quote. I like that. Into well. this demented inn. <laughs> but, that, but Christ comes, you know, God comes to us uninvited. Yeah. We're, not, we're not out there looking, waiting for him. You know, we think we are. We, you know, I have another phrase I, I, I use so often when, when I'm faced with having to do something that I know I have to do and yet I want to put it off, uh, procrastinate a bit. It's, 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 we must accept the cup as offered, not altered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we always want to, to, could you pour some out, please? It's so full. Or could you put a little sugar in there, please? Or maybe not today. Can I take some tomorrow? No, yeah. no, I'm afraid not. We have to accept it as it's offered. And so that's, that's what I think the full embracing of spirituality is really about. It's about a consciousness <laughs> that is not always... Um, expressed in religion, but it is in our humanity, yeah. You know, one thing that I wondered if, I I just want to ask you a question, if I may. How, may I? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, if you don't mind, is this business of prayer. Yeah. Do you ask people in your uh, interviews if they pray or how they pray or what they pray or what does prayer mean to them? Have you ever gone into that, uh, um, that area? It's, it certainly comes up, but it's not a question I would just ask somebody out of the book. It's the most intimate question, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. This is the most curious uh, uh-huh. yeah. element of the spiritual life. I, I'm always mm. curious about how people pray and what images they use mm. to go to that place where they can pray. And what does prayer mean to them? What, what do they expect? Or is it something 
across your life that has do you yeah, feel that prayer has changed a lot or yeah or is it, you know uh, one of the most curious uh, questions in the in the new testament is the uh, the friends of jesus saying teach us how to pray yeah. and he gives them the our father that's the only prayer that really uh, comes to us from the master yeah and how interesting that those men at that time or at least the people in his community asked him how to pray yeah that they were devout Jews, and they had a very structured form of prayer and worship and sacrifice, and that they asked him, teach us how to pray, is, the, is a very curious question to me, that they wanted to go deeper. They wanted to go more personal, I guess. Most of us, you know, we pray when something we're in the form of a crisis or we want something or we feel we need something, you know. I saw an interesting thing the other day in the paper. Somebody, one of the candidates was asked uh, where uh, God was when 9-11 happened. Yeah. And he said, well, there's good and there's evil in the world and we have to be aware of that. Well, my response to that would have been that God was in the towers. Mm. God was present to each individual going through that horrible, right? Uh, facing their own death individually and with a community, that God is present in, in our deepest hungers and our, our worst times as well as our best. But we often are forced to pray in ways that we can never articulate in, in bad times. How often? The expression is, oh, my God, when we see something yeah. good or evil. You know, the expression is the same. Oh, my God, you know. So I'm just curious yeah. about that. How, I just thought I'd can uh, I So can I yeah. ask how, you, what, how yeah. prayer works for you, and has that changed across your lifetime? Is it different now than it was 20 years oh, ago? Oh, yeah. It, you know, it changes almost daily. It, yeah. it's, I feel it's the one time where I am commanded to use my imagination because that, I think, mm. is where it starts, isn't it? Yes. Uh, is with the imagination. So what do you imagine? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? Uh, what are you driving towards? Where are you during that period of prayer? That's the thing that fascinates me. It, for me, the central energy of it, I guess, is at communion, at the Eucharist. And yes. for the most part, I'm just so stunned and so joy-filled that for the most part, I just say thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you for your presence. Thank you. Thank you. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with actor Martin Sheen. In the summer of 2003, he traced part of the legendary pilgrimage route, the Camino de Santiago, and later starred in a film about it, The Way, which was written and directed by his son Emilio and co-produced by Janet, his wife of over 50 years. Let's talk about the way and the, the pilgrimage because, you know, you've also said one of the ways you describe, you know, who, who is Martin Sheen? Who is Ramon Estevez? You are a pilgrim. Now, the, the road to Santiago de Compostela is, uh, is this famous pilgrimage in a thousand, no, what is it, 800 kilometers? Yeah, it's 800 kilometers, Spain, yeah. 500 miles, yeah. yeah, and it's a thousand years old, blah, yeah. blah, blah. My father was a Gallego. He was born not too far, about yes. 70 kilometers yeah. from Santiago. He was from Vigo. But it yeah. is interesting that it was also... It was also a pilgrimage into your family roots. I mean, back into yes, that, both was, of your yeah. names, Martin and, and Ramon. Yes, it was, yeah. Uh -huh. it, uh, you know, no one had ever been given permission to film inside the cathedral. Oh, I didn't know In that. Santiago, yeah. Um, big, only uh, newsreel footage and documentaries. They never allowed a production company in there to actually film a drama. But uh, we prevailed upon them and said we were very respectful and we were Spanish and we were Catholic and yeah. we were, uh, wanted to celebrate this. And so, the, yeah, they let us in. They lit the cathedral for us and let us film the mass and the butofamero, you know, the huge uh, incense burner that flies across from ceiling to ceiling. But, you know, pilgrimage, uh, although it's a physical endeavor, mm. uh, for the most part it's, a, it's an interior 
pilgrimage. It's an interior journey, and all the pilgrims uh, who've ever done it have come to that realization. It's, it's, uh, you're walking physically. That's something you're doing outside, but there's something else going on inside, and it's the journey to your true self, I think. Mm. You know, we begin to realize, because we're quiet and focused uh, in a way that we normally are not, you know. So you get uh, six, eight, ten weeks uh, on pilgrimage to learn about yourself and right. to celebrate your life, you know. Well, this is so wonderful. I, I just want to ask you a, a couple more questions. Um, sure. I actually want to go back a little bit to the West Wing. You said that it was such an incredible experience personally, professionally, mm-hmm. and spiritually. How mm-hmm. would you talk about, for you, that how that was a, um, spiritually significant, playing that role and being part of that series? Well, um, what we do... Uh, for a living, that is, artists, you know, uh, we, we live on the energy of our imagination. Our imagination projects us to fulfill our work. And it is the one sure measure of authenticity is to use your imagination mm. to explore realities. And so working as an actor on the West Wing reflecting the most powerful office in the world, it seemed to me the most important thing was to project the humanity Hmm. of that office and that whoever occupied it had a responsibility to be more human than anyone else around him and to trust the instinct of your humanness, to embrace all of the brokenness and the insecurities and the fear and anxiety and the trust in something higher that as long as you were doing your best to be honest and forthright that you would come out on even ground and I trusted that as an actor and um, I discovered very early on that if I used different language than what had been written by Aaron Sorkin I felt it was more realistic. Well, I'm more Martin. Martin would say this, and, and right. I said, yeah, well, okay. And it took me a while to embrace that. And when I finally did and, and got out of his way with the language, I realized that it was not Martin. It was Bartlett. There was a scene one time, he actually, in the, I thought it was a mistake, but in the script, he had me literally banging my head on the desk in the Oval Office. And mm-hmm. I said, I can't do this. Uh, Aaron, I'm sure you made a mistake. He said, no, if you do it, you'll see. And just like all imaginative uh, artists, yeah, I, I was ruled by him, and I did it, and it was the only thing that I could do in the scene that reflected how the president felt at that huh. moment. I, I actually wondered yeah. how you felt about lighting up a cigarette in a church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my. <laughs> that was not easy. No? Because, uh, uh, you know, that's a national cathedral. Yeah. And uh, it, you know what? When we filmed that in the National Cathedral, uh, yeah, I was very, very reluctant to do that. But it was only when I did it that I understood how important it was. Here was a man who was facing despair, who was in a dialogue with the Almighty. That takes a pretty good imagination and a big <laughs> ego to to pull that off. And I remember the curators of the church were very upset about what I did. And between takes, uh, I was talking to them, and they said, we think it's disgraceful, and it ought not be done. And I said, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm sorry you, uh, you're subject to this. And then I looked up, and exactly above my head was a stained glass uh, image in the window of Job. Right. And I said, I said, what a coincidence. Look at that guy up there. That's what I am down here today. Yeah. It's yeah. Job crying out to God, how could you do this to me? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, right. <laughs> it was like, it was so biblical. Yeah. It was so, uh, it was so ingrained uh, in the Jewish community to have a, an open dialogue with God. That was a form of prayer. Yeah. Where is, where is your passion, your curiosity directed right now? Where are you feeling called to this spiritual discipline of human presence and what's happening in the world now? 
Um, well, it's so clear in the horrible situations uh, in the Mideast and so many countries, particularly Syria. We've watched this yeah. horror unravel. Uh, there is no Syria. It has become a living hell that people are trying to to get out of. Uh, it's just that this descent into this level of inhumanity, of this level of insanity, uh, is clear to the whole world. We just watch in horror, and more violence creates more violence. And the, the, we're, we seem thrown back into uh, despair. Each time we move forward, we face despair. And yet, looking at the lives coming out of that horror, these extraordinary people who risked their lives getting out and then risked their lives trying to cross Europe, trying to get to a safe haven and to uh, be subject to so much what I call basically vulgarity, you know, mm. that they, yeah, a good they're word. being stopped from coming in here yeah. or going where they can be safe. Uh, I would think that the answer to the horrors that we witnessed recently in Paris would be to open our arms even wider and embrace even more and say, this is our answer to this insanity. Mm. So that, that, that's yeah. the one overriding uh, okay. issue that, I would, that I'm immensely concerned about and that I am troubled by. Mm. You said somewhere... Or wrote, I think, I don't know what salvation means in a personal sense. For me, a better word is freedom, which I think for you is connected with this, this idea that you keep bringing home about your core of gratitude and community and love and these things as the basis for your action. I mean, you're not, you're not talking about freedom as autonomy or isolation or, or mere independence. I mean, it might have a quality of independence. You, you, you're, you're talking about freedom yeah. as connected to community in some way. I think yes, exactly. that's what I hear coming yeah. through. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So often people get stuck, and I did myself, on the spiritual journey, if you will, with piety. And that is a terrible stumbling block. I'm not, I have nothing against piety. But I think that piety is the, the road. It is not the, the destination. Mm. If being pious leads you to a form of personal reflection and acceptance of a higher power, then it has its purpose. But it has to be discarded in the larger picture in favor of the community because piety is something that you do or you tend to do alone. Mm. And true freedom, spirituality, can only be achieved in community. Mm. Even if the community is only imagined. I mean, someone living <laughs> okay. in a cell by themselves, yeah. alone in repression, uh, you know, in the darkest of times, still, they are in community. That's the, the wonderful thing, that image that... Catholicism uses and refers to as the communion of saints, yeah. that even after we're gone, we're still a part of something that's very much alive and we respond to, you know. Mm. And our church is, uh, thank heaven for this extraordinary man, Francis, uh, who is teaching us that our church has to be less a museum for saints than it should be a hospital for sinners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but that's what that's. I love the community of of, of saints and mm -hmm. sinners. <laughs> you can't really separate them. You know, you can't identify one without the other, which is wonderful because that's community. Yeah. You know? But I, I I feel a part of a community even when I'm uh, distanced from it. You know. Yeah. The greatest mysteries are the simplest ones. Uh, that those are the ones that we confront every day. I had a conversation once with a, a priest. I was in, I was traveling and went to confession in this very remote place, and and this guy and it was wonderful. We were having a theological uh, uh, conversation 
in the confessional, and suddenly he said, well, we don't know what God is, do we? (laughs) And he he said it as if, well, you know, maybe I ran into someone who did. You know, I'm not... (laughs) I'm not going to foreclose that possibility. But, right. you know, what it says and? is we, every time we try, to, we try to identify God, we are sure to identify what, he is certainly, what she is certainly not. Uh, mm-hmm. but, so we don't know what God is. And the genius of God to dwell where we would least likely look within the depths of our own being, our own shallowness, our own darkness... Our own humanity. That's the genius of God. Well, Martin Sheen, Ramon Estevez, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. It's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you you very much. Now you know what a windbag I am. Ramon Estevez, also known as Martin Sheen, has appeared in over 100 films, including Badlands, Apocalypse Now, and The Way, as well as on television in The West Wing, and most recently in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Carolyn Friedhoff, and Catherine Kwong. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.